0: Good morning and if you're just joining us, uh, welcome to Bethany United Methodist Church where we're leading people to experience God's love, to know Jesus Christ and to grow in His image. Uh, This is Pentecost Sunday as well as the last Sunday of May and thus uh, the, the change to the the Red Stoles this morning, uh, this is the, the day on which we celebrate what's traditionally called the birth of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But before I get into that, I want to start with a, a little different uh, quote. Uh, I want to, uh, to reach back to our, our friend John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, um, and, and share a little bit of a, a sermon he preached. In 1744, he was invited to come back to his, uh, his uh, alma mater, Oxford University, and preach at St. Mary's Chapel, which you can still go to uh, today. Uh, and preached a sermon there, and and he was preaching basically to his former colleagues, people he had gone to school with there, or people he had tutored or worked with while he was there, uh, as well as uh, some of the students who would go on to become uh, priests in the Church of England. Uh, The sermon was called Scriptural Christianity. It's one of his more well-known, more uh, famous quoted uh, sermons. And in the midst of this, uh, he speaks to them uh, about the difference between a living faith and a dead faith, Um, and what's going on in the Church of England. And he says these words. "'May it not be one of the consequences of this "'that so many of you are a generation of triflers, "'triflers with God, with one another, and with your own souls. "'For how few of you spend from one week to another "'a single hour in private prayer. "'How few have any thought of God "'in the general tenor of your conversation.'" Who of you is in any degree acquainted with the work of his spirit, his supernatural work in the souls of men? Can you bear, unless now and then in a church, any talk of the Holy Ghost? Would you not take it for granted if one began such a conversation that it was either hypocrisy or enthusiasm? In the name of the Lord God Almighty, I ask, what religion are you of? Even the talk of Christianity you cannot, will not bear. Oh, my brethren, what a Christian city is this? Now, first thing you need to know is he was never invited back to speak there again after this sermon, uh, after he rather confront, this was rather confrontational kind of moment. Uh, And the second thing I want to say is he talks in there about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit we tend to hear that word supernatural as being a, a word about something that is either unnatural or kind of magical or mythical, uh, and, and that really is a misuse of the language. Uh, to be unnatural is to be opposed to nature, to be supernatural is to be above or beyond nature, and and if you think about uh, our belief that God is the God who was before, that in God, everything was created—time uh, and space and everything within it—that we know. Uh, it's very clear that God is, by definition, supernatural. That God is beyond and above nature, and so any time that God acts in the midst of our world, it is a supernatural act by definition. Uh, not necessarily magical or mythical, but it is supernatural and, and that use of the word supernatural" is what Mr. Wesley is intending when he preaches this sermon and it 's what you will hear being used now uh, in the groups that are talking about the moving of the Holy Spirit or the study of the Holy Spirit, which is known as Uh and, and so I want you to hear that term as we uh, we go into this sermon and, and keep that in mind that this is when it talks about the supernatural work. He's not talking about some kind of you know, wand-waving, magical Harry Potter kind of stuff. Uh, he's talking about the movement of God, God himself, uh, in the midst of the world we live in. When he speaks this sermon to the students uh, and his colleagues at St. Mary's, uh, he is addressing the fact that, that in the Anglican church of that time, in, in Mr. Wesley's opinion, they had lost touch with the living spirit of God. Uh, and I'm wondering how much that speaks to us now. Uh, Let's pray this morning. Come Holy Spirit and be in the midst of us, set us on fire. Uh, Let the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The traditional story for Pentecost or, or what's often called the birthday of the church comes from the second chapter of Acts and this is how it reads. When the day of Pentecost had come... Now, now it's interesting as, as you hear this, remember Mr. Wesley's comment about if you encountered an actual act of God, a supernatural act of God, people talking about that, would you not think of that as being a hypocritical or, or enthusiasm, which in his day meant excessive emotionalism? And, and, and you hear at this first outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the crowd, some of them are amazed at it, but some of them are looking at it in a very cynical way, right? Oh, uh, they, they've just been drinking too much wine. And in response to this, our friend Peter, the apostle, gets up and begins to speak. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now now in that moment in in Jerusalem, something amazing happens. and, And we usually focus on, Uh, the speaking in tongues, the the glossolalia is the technical term, Uh, the ability for the disciples uh, all of a sudden to speak in languages they didn't know and and languages that were recognized by all this international crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And we see that, and and surely that is a sign of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. But I want to look at one other place that I see the outpouring of the Spirit of God in here is that it's Peter who gets up to speak. Now remember, this is is Peter, the great fisherman. Uh, Peter who oftentimes uh, opens his mouth and says things he shouldn't. Uh, This is Peter who sometimes has a short temper. Uh, This is Peter who under pressure denies knowing Jesus three times. And and now in front of this great crowd, he gets up and he says, Men of Jerusalem, uh, listen to me. And he launches into this eloquent recitation of the prophet Joel, and then this speech goes on further. I mean, something amazing has happened to take Peter the fisherman and transform into Peter uh, the eloquent statesman of the kingdom of God. And what is that? What, what happens? I mean, it's what Jesus has told them what happened back in the beginning of the book of Acts. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I mean, this, this section of Acts where, where Jesus comes and says, listen, you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Your job right now is just to wait. It's not your job to plan, not your job to program, not your job to figure out how to do anything. Your job is to, to wait and so they wait. And then there's this amazing moment when the Spirit does indeed get poured out upon them. And in that moment, God does that supernatural work in Peter that transforms him from being the fisherman to being this eloquent statesman of the kingdom of God. I mean, to me, that's as miraculous as the rest of that whole story. And it reminds us because Jesus has said, listen, you got to wait. You got to wait for the spirit. It reminds me of a passage in John 15 uh, where he reminds them, I'm the vine, you're the branches, those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Wait. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. There's this this emphasis on waiting for God to indwell and empower his people. Now, now John Wesley um, uh, encountered that, and and that's part of what he's speaking when he talks to that group at St. Mary's Chapel. Uh, that they, they've lost that connection with God, that, that living presence of God with them. So I want to take you back and remind you um, that John Wesley on May 24th has what's called his Aldersgate experience. This is sometimes thought of as the beginning of the Methodist movement, uh, the date for this. But this is the time when, when he, for the first time in his life, truly encounters uh, the forgiving grace of God. And he goes from an obsessive pursuit of his own salvation on his own, to to a blessed assurance that he's been given that as a gift from God. And as he thinks about this and writes about it, he's going to talk about uh, experiencing justification, which is that great work which God does for us in forgiving our sins. And he's going to talk about regeneration, our new birth, that great work which God does in us, renewing our fallen nature. Now, he would tell you that both of these occur in, in, in time with one another. It's, it's kind of a simultaneous event. But as he talks about it, uh, his language is not already, always real clear. So some scholars will say that regeneration or new birth is part of justification or part of justifying grace. Some will say it's actually the beginning of sanctifying, uh, sanctification, uh, the work of sanctifying grace. Uh, Wesley's going to talk about it as the gateway. He's going to say, this is the gateway to sanctification. So I, I don't know that he ever really defined that past that, except that these events come together, that once we are forgiven, uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives new birth to us, which puts us in a position then uh, to receive the Holy Spirit and thus begin to grow, renewing our fallen nature, being grown back into the very image of Christ. So, so in that moment, he, he experiences that, but there's a further event that has a lot to do with this, because throughout 1738, uh, following Aldersgate, he's going to write and he's going to think. But then, toward the end of the year, um, on the last night of the year, December 31st, um, he's going to go and join with a Moravian society that meets on Fetter's Lane, uh, and it's going to be called the Fetter Lane Society uh, for a watch night service. Uh, they would would uh, share a love feast and pray as they waited for the new year to begin. Uh, this is an artist's drawing of, of the building, the actual structure uh, that this took place in. Uh, this is what the artist thinks it looks like. Uh, this was replaced later by the Moravian Central Hall, which was destroyed in the bombing of World War II. And so if you go there now, there's a, like an office building with a plaque on the outside of it. Uh, but this is what they thought it looked like, and this is where he went that night of December. And, and this is what happened. Mr. Hall, Hinching, Ingham, Whitfield, Hutching, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty. We broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. There's this powerful event that takes place in that moment when Wesley discovers how absolutely necessary the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in Aldersgate, he experiences God's forgiving grace, but it's at Fetter Lane that he is empowered by the Spirit. After Aldersgate, he does a lot of writing and letters. After Fetter Lane, he begins to act. Uh, Some scholars will actually argue that January 1st is the actual birth date of the Methodist movement because of that. And it's that moment and that experience of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that marked Wesley and marked the early Methodist movement, which was often accused of excessive enthusiasm, of being too emotionally overwrought because of these moments that he describes here. And those of you who have been in Pentecostal worship services... If you remember what you experienced there, you'll recognize that many cried out for exceeding joy and many fell to the ground. What is often talked about as being overwhelmed or overcome by the Holy Spirit... Sometimes the language being slain by the Holy Spirit is used. It's this uh, encounter with the very presence of God's Holy Spirit that is so powerful and so overwhelming and so joyous that, that people just kind of go down uh, and for a moment are, are just lost in that place. Uh, so, uh, you know, it sounds very much like what Wesley experienced there is what many of our brothers and sisters have experienced through the years. And, and he understood from that, that from this point forward, that, that everything that created a life of faith, relied upon the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just just as Peter had to encounter that Holy Spirit, because without it, you can do nothing. And so later on in his life, as he would write, uh, thinking about his experience at Oxford and thinking about the future of the Methodist movement, he would say, I am not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist, either in Europe or America, but I am afraid, lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast the, both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. This kind of understanding that it, it requires all of this, this, this doctrine, it requires discipline, but it requires the spirit to be present with them in this, to, to enliven the church uh, and to make the church what it is. This is why Pentecost is the birthday of the church. This is why some people argue that Fetter Lane is actually the birthday of the Methodist movement, because this is where the contact was made, if you will, with the Holy Spirit and, and where that power came into the church and things begin to happen. Um, if you look into Luke's gospel and you go over to really the, the first mission, Uh, that Jesus charged the disciples with uh, in the ninth chapter. He calls the twelve together. He gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing people everywhere. He sends them out with his authority and power. Not on their own authority and power, but with his authority and power. And he sends them out with nothing. Don't take anything except the clothes on your back. Because he wants them to understand that God is going to provide for them everything they need. He doesn't want them to go out and think, oh, we planned this really well. We programmed it really well. We resourced it really well. We brought everything we needed to make this happen. He wants them to go out with nothing and be totally reliant on the power of God's Holy Spirit to empower them and authorize them to do the work. And what's the work? Healing diseases, casting out demons, proclaiming the kingdom. Sometimes without that power... uh, You know, the church uh, ceases to be the church and becomes more of the institution. Uh, in our own history in the Methodist movement, uh, in, in the early 20th century, uh, the, there was a revival in 1906 called the Azusa Street Reservi- Revival. It took place in L.A. I mistakenly spoke at 9.30 and said New York. It took place in L.A. Uh, and took off from L.A. It became a, a national phenomenon. Uh, and, and people from across the country began to come, and, and out of that revival uh, were created things like the Assemblies of God, World of Pentecost, and so forth. And many of the Methodists, who had more Pentecostal leanings, uh, ended up joining in those other movements and left behind the Methodists who were not of those leanings. And and that more or less marks the beginning of the decline of Methodism in the United States. Because without the power of the Spirit, uh, we tended to become more of an institution. You know, all through these stories, you hear the, the necessity of the power and the promise of God, the, the indwelling of the Spirit to empower us. And all through it, you hear, you know, without us, you can do nothing. Uh, you know, if you think about our history in the world and you think about who we are, uh, you, you recognize that, that, that history demonstrates this. In the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a movement in Europe and North America called the Social Gospel. Uh, and it was good people of the church who, who felt like we, we know Scripture, uh, we know Jesus Christ. If we get together and we put our mind to this, we can create a better world. And so they began to work on that, and they created a number of utopian communities, uh, both in the United States and, and in Europe, pretty much all of which failed over a period of time. Uh, but they kept working with this and developing this kind of concept of the social gospel. Uh, and then World War I came along. And, and we saw the horrors of trench warfare and chemical warfare. World War II followed, and our soldiers walked into the concentration camps of Nazi Germany and experienced that and, and shared their pictures with us. Our, our soldiers went from island to island in the Pacific and sent back pictures from places like Iwo Jima. And they finally arrived in Japan, and, and we saw... Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the atomic bombs. And it rattled, it rattled that confidence that had been born of the social gospel. Created a movement called Neo-Orthodoxy, but it, but it revived an awareness in us that as well as we plan things, as well as we program things, if God is not in them, inevitably they will be broken and become sinful. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's the way we tend to work, where we tend to want to say, okay, God, thank you. Uh, we understand all this. We got this now. Uh, we, can, we can do this. But, you know, thank you for getting us up to speed, but we got this. Uh, and if you really think about it, it's what Adam and Eve did back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they were in the Garden of Eden, and they saw the tree and saw the fruit was good to eat. And they thought, well, it's, if we eat it, we'll have the knowledge of good and evil, so we'll be like God. So, so, so they ate. We, we, we got this. It's, it's why it's the first time we sinned called the original sin. You know, we got this, God. We, we don't, you know, thank you. But over and over and over and over in our history, we prove that anytime we think, oh, we've got this, no matter how well it's planned, no matter how well it's programmed, we bring our brokenness and our failures and our sinfulness to it. Without God's life breathing into it, It's so easy for us to end up mired in our own brokenness. So the story of the gospel traces that down. All through Scripture, you see it in the history of Israel, you see it in the people of God over and over and over. Uh, Dr. David Watson, who is the uh, academic dean and vice president Of united theological seminary i wrote these words a couple of years ago and if you go online you'll hear him saying similar things to this in a number of different recordings Uh, but i've been present with him in a number of uh, meetings over the past couple of years as as some of us have begun to think you know that that the spirit is beginning to, to rattle and move and that there we're on the edge maybe of another awakening maybe something like what happened in the azusa street revival but but i want you to listen to what dr watson writes Within many mainline traditions, there's a great fear of our dwindling numbers, our growing irrelevance, and institutional implosion. We therefore develop plans and programs, business plans, dashboards and benchmarks, church growth initiatives, leadership development schemes, and other devices of our own invention as as ways to curb the ongoing decline among our communities of faith. As a professional administrator, I certainly value well-thought-out plans, and I understand the importance of strategic institutional initiatives. These are ways of being faithful stewards of what God has given us. And yet, strategy, plans, and programs can never truly achieve church renewal or revive us as believers. Too often, we have functioned as if we are self-reliant and self-sustaining. We have institutionalized to the extent that we have forgotten our utter dependence upon the power of God. We have relied on endowments, on cultural Christianity, on the cultural significance of the mainline church itself, and we have forgotten the true source of our life. We are driving along in a beautiful 1968 Cadillac, but we've neglected to put gas in the tank. Without the empowering work of the Spirit, We cannot be faithful to our calling to make disciples, to baptize people into faith in Christ and teach them about life in Christ. Therefore, we cannot exist as the church. All true renewal, renewal in Christ, is simply a demonstration of the Spirit's work. All true revival is the work of God. Therefore, as followers of Christ, our primary task is to pray for the power of the Spirit and discern the work of the Spirit. This is, always has been, and always will be the only hope for any form of the church. The church, rightly conceived, exists as a community of believers bound together in the power, presence, and work of the Holy Spirit. As Watson pins those words, uh, a number of us across the country are coming to agree with him. That, that it is time for us to cry out again for an outpouring of the Spirit. As we've been at home during this time of pandemic, I know a lot of people have had time to think about where their lives are and, and what their relationships are at and reflect on all of that. And, and I would invite you, as you are doing that, to invite God's Holy Spirit into that conversation with you. Um, because again, when we think we've got this, we always fail. And, and as we've gone through these past couple of weeks, uh, we've had this tremendous reminder, uh, especially in the last week uh, with the death of George Floyd, that although we've planned and we've programmed and we've educated, uh, hoping to, to combat racism in our country, uh, it, it's still racism and, and fear is, is still very much alive in the midst of us. Um, we still tend to look at people who are different from us in, in color or dress or, or language, but we look at people who are different from us and we tend to see them with suspicion and with fear instead of as brothers and sisters in Christ. And while Watson's accurate that the planning and programming is necessary, I think he's also correct that we need to invite the Spirit into it. So I want to invite you as we move through uh, the next coming weeks of Pentecost to consider how it is you can invite the Spirit to come alive in your life. Uh, If you're not in a small group, whether in a mayor's reunion group or a grow group in the church, I would strongly encourage you to do that as a way to to connect and get connected with your brothers and sisters as well as with God's Holy Spirit. But I also want to invite you just to to join with me in praying over and over as we move through these coming weeks. Come Holy Spirit, come. Set our hearts on fire. Because apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and we shall be created. And you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy your consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.